Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Rob Long, one of the founders and editors at Ricochet.com. The podcast you're about to hear is a production of Ricochet.com, and if you haven't gone to visit us on the web, we invite you to do so. We are the fastest-growing, smartest, most civil conversation anywhere on the internet, and we invite you to become a member. Now, as a member, you get all the podcasts, including our famous flagship podcast between me, Peter Robinson, and James Lilacs comes out weekly. You also get to comment and contribute to the conversations on the member feed and the main feed. And now, for the cost of a yearly membership, you also get a year-long subscription to National Review Digital. That's the digital version of the magazine. So now you can read me and James Lilacs and Mark Stein and all of our Ricochet friends who are crossover between Ricochet and National Review in a handy PDF format. So if you subscribe to Ricochet... To become a member, you get Ricochet and the podcasts and the conversations and now a year's subscription to National Review Digital. Please go to ricochet.com and join today. Hello and welcome to the Ricochet Podcast with Rob Long, Jonah Goldberg, and John Fedoritz. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com. That's all one word, audiblepodcast.com slash GPL, Goldberg, Fedoritz Long, GPL. So, fellas, Jonah, are you in, um, uh, in, in D.C.? I am in D.C. Are you, uh, are you dry? I'm dry. Um, D.C. wasn't hit that bad. It was yeah. just a lot of rain and wind. But that, that storm that hit this summer, I think, knocked out every knockdownable lamppost <laughs> tree and, and power line so that we didn't lose that much power. I mean, I, I've lost power on every, every major opportunity to lose power for the last few years and didn't this time. So, uh, And John Podoritz, you are in – you're in uh, Upper West Side of Manhattan. How are you? Are you guys uh, – are you guys sloshing – you sailing down uh, Broadway? Well, we're totally fine. Uh, one of the oddities of a, of a storm like this is that uh, my neighborhood, which sits uh, – the neighborhood that Jonah grew up in, which sits high up on a bluff on bedrock – about 50 feet above the river was totally unaffected. And, you know, the rainstorm was a conventional rainstorm. The winds were very high, but the winds are very high on my block as it was. So, you know, if it weren't for, you know, TV and Twitter, I wouldn't have known that four and a half miles away, you know, <laughs> the Armageddon was taking place. Um, now I'm actually speaking to you from my office, which is, uh, in Times Square. And, um, you know, basically below a couple of blocks south of me, the city goes dark, um, you know, miles and miles uh, uh, without power, um, you know, more than a million people without power, uh, the entire financial sector without power, uh, Jonah's server and uh, at NRO and uh, my server at commentarymagazine.com without power. Um, and the real issue here in New York is what's going to happen with the subways because, you know, people who don't live here can't really appreciate what it means to have subways not working. Four right. million people ride them daily and they don't have alternate means of transportation. It's not like 
the subway is an elective. It is, you know, you don't have a car. Right. You've got no other way to get across the river. I, I remember you know, a couple of years very, ago, right, remember a couple of years ago during the snowstorm, uh, I think you and I were going to have lunch or something. And I was, <laughs> I was like trying to get up uptown on a subway. I couldn't do it. So, right. so it's like, I mean, it, I mean, you know, Manhattan is all, obviously it's all about, it's all about, well, New York City is all about boroughs. Manhattan's all about, about neighborhoods. Is there any story to tell with these neighborhoods? I was just, I just posted on a ricochet. I was reading through Bloomberg and there was a great, uh, uh, very, uh, I don't know, very sort of deadpan roundup of how investment bankers fared um, during the storm. And, uh, you know, there's sort of thing, one guy said, well, I had to, you know, I was losing power in my wine cellar, so I had to drink a 2005 Chateau Margaux, which is delicious. And another guy right. said, well, you know, I, I sat around and played Monopoly with my children, but they got mad at me because I, when I play Monopoly with my children, I, I, I played a win. Uh, and I, <laughs> and I, I, right. I mean, is there is there any any insight here into like, well, like I was reading, you know, downtown is downtown is a very rich part of town. Those are like a lot of the hipsters right. are now finally living the way they've always wanted to live, sort of in nineteenth century conditions. Well, you know, the the interesting thing is that the reason that this that that the you know entire south of the island is without power, um, in part, it's because they shut down this, the, you know, these power stations before the storm uh, in order to protect them. But, you know, it was also that there was this one gigantic explosion uh, at about 15th Street on the East River that they, they did not anticipate that the East River was going to overflow where it did and, and take out this, this um, Con Edison transformer station. You've probably seen the footage on YouTube. It looks like, you know, it looks like yeah, a bomb went off. Um, so... Uh, you know, that's everything. That's not just Tribeca, which is where a very rich investment bankers right. live, or, you know, down by Wall Street. That means the East Village, which is, you know, which is a, uh, a tenement yeah. neighborhood that's, you know, half young people and half Puerto Ricans and Dominicans and, and people like that. And, you know, they're, they're, in terms of sort of a genuinely, disturbingly ironic homemade footage, there was, you know, this, this this footage of these Occupy Wall Street people in the Far <laughs> East Village, you know, basically practically drowning as they were filming the waters rising. But they finally um, need that camping equipment they have. They, they finally, yeah. <laughs> that's finally so, useful. Hey, J- Jonah, have you been getting your news from the news? Or you, I mean, like me, I, I, I've been getting it from, I mean, I've been looking at pictures from Facebook and Twitter, I have to be honest. I mean, yeah, I, I'm going to say that to you because I know you are a a verified Twitter user or Twitter is it user? That we are? Verified Twitter user. I have a verified Twitter account, which Twitter means account. I don't have to go through security at airports. Right. Um, hey, John. Really- John, are you a verified Twitter account? <laughs> I I reject I reject categorically the idea that this this. this Dividing Twitter into verified and unverified users, yeah. I find yeah. it insulting and offensive. And I just want to point out that you know Jonah with yeah. his fancy blue checkmark that right. declares him a verified Twitter user. What has he contributed to the store of human knowledge? Yeah, in the you know what? I, since I, he got the blue checkmark, I, 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 I don't. I don't mean to interrupt polio? you, John. I don't mean yeah. to interrupt you, but we have we do have a verified Twitter uh, a user, a verified Twitter account online, uh, Jonah. So, so have you? <laughs> have, you been, have you been used? Have you been getting? I mean, I've been getting great pictures from it. I, I kind of get all everything I need. 
Yeah, I, I like the one with Godzilla and the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man attacking the Statue of Liberty. That was the, the best picture that's come out of this so far. Um, I know it's been a mix of things. Um, you know, now that I'm a, now that I'm verified, I mostly just have my staff point out interesting pictures to me wherever they come from. But um, the one thing I'm sort of obsessed with, and I will admit that this is entirely a geeky obsession of mine, is, you know, uh, ever since I was a little kid, there was a New Yorker article that my father read that said that there were three rats for every New Yorker in terms of the population. And my dad always used to say, I want my three rats. Like, he always wanted to know which ones were his. And now I look on Wikipedia, and there are four rats per New Yorker. So that puts the population of rats in New York City at around 32 million. Now, we know from Hurricane Katrina that when the, when the floodwaters came in, the rats en masse climbed houses and climbed trees, and sometimes there would be tens of thousands of rats in a, tr- in a big tree trying to get above the water. I want to know where all the subway rats went because if those things flooded, it's not like they flooded instantaneously. The rats had time to get out, and I think the New York Post needs to get on this because there's got to be some great story about a mass wall of rodents escaping the floodwaters and going into a nice sort of two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan or something. I think yeah, it's – uh, Yeah, the rats should have been driven uptown as, totally. as, as in know, time days of the old. You know, I have a coworker, uh, Aide Greenwald, who is practically in a state of nervous collapse as a result of Jonah's complete obsessional uh, treatment of this very question on Twitter. He is, he, he is not sleeping at night. He he's a Jew who is starting to count the rosary uh, in order to do whatever he can oh, to you know, any port uh, to storm to evade the rat uh, to evade the rat menace. Um, you know, if this is the sort of thing that a person does when he gets verified on Twitter, <laughs> I just want to point out that this Twitter verification system. Yeah. Is a moral stain on mankind, and yeah. I, I, I don't say that because I don't have a verified Twitter account. I, I really, I, I want to make this clear. Yeah, because I, do. I have no interest in joining the jackals, Jonah, Lady Gaga, Adolf Hitler. I, I have no interest in joining <laughs> this crew of people with these blue check marks who are, admit, who are yeah. inventing conspiracy theories about rats overrunning New York City to terrify poor editors of commentary magazines. Shame on you, Goldberg. You would change your for t- shame if you saw the Frequent Flyer Miles program that they have for verified Twitter. Oh, yeah, it must be great. It must be great. Uh, uh, so, so, I mean, just a, 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 one more st- a storm question. I really am, am sort of interested because I saw, I saw pictures of uh, you know, empty stores. I saw pictures of you know, no beer downtown. Um, is there has anybody, any of you guys seen? Um, and I'm, I'm actually going to include in this question the the uh, the person with the unverified Twitter account, just kind of for fun, in a kind of an affirmative action kind of a way. I mean, is there any? Is there? Do you guys hear anything about um, price gouging? Is there, was there any looting? Was there any bad stuff? It just seemed kind of like no. you know, you know, no, bad disaster, try, but look, nothing bad, not bad behavior. You know, when you don't have a verified Twitter account, you, you're much closer <laughs> to the real people. You know, you don't you don't live in some ivory tower bubble uh, of first class lounges and you know free massages from geishas who you know 
right. work in unmarked parts of the airport. So I can tell you, based on my greater understanding of, uh, of, the, of the unwashed, um, that the, the story, as it has been in every major disaster or crisis moment of New York City, really since about 1994, is the um, astonishing uh, order and civility mm-hmm. with which New Yorkers now handle these reversals. Um, and I, I can only contrast this to uh, uh, when I was 16 years old and stood outside my apartment building during the 1977 blackout, standing there at two o'clock in the morning with a baseball bat with 20 other people who lived in my building, protecting it from the looters who were, who were going up and down uh, Broadway and various other places did in 12 hours, $2 billion worth of property damage. Um, a, a display of sort of lawless, uh, uncivilized behavior, the likes of which I've never seen. I think the only other time we've really seen it in America in, in recent times was the uh, Los Angeles riots after the yeah. Rodney King verdict. Right. And um, something has something changed markedly in the city. You know, it's easy to, the, the quick way to say it is that the Giuliani changes. Yeah, but you know what's interesting um, but, about that but, is, but something became vastly more civilized in this city from the city that I grew up in and that Jonah grew up in. Yeah, and the first gunshots really I ever heard started. were during the '77 blackout. Um, right. Yeah, remember the elect- John? Remember the electronics store? It was on like 82nd and Broadway. The the RCA Victor. R- was, yeah, it was on. The, yeah, yeah, RCI. RCI. Yeah, it was radio, like, radio clinic. And um, I remember my dad took my brother and I out to just sort of see what was going on. And it was when people started throwing cinder blocks through that window to go loot the place. And the owner came out and was almost overwhelmed by the crowd that my dad said, okay, we're going back inside now. And we all went home, but uh, it was a really eye opening experience for me. Um, and I was probably eight or nine at the time. But what's strange is the same thing because you referred to the riots. I mean, when the riots, I was in LA during the time, but if you were on the West side of LA, if you were in Brentwood or Santa Monica, I was in Santa Monica, you, you watched them on TV. They didn't really have any effect on you, you know, where you were. And I think it's, it seems like it's almost the same thing. Um, what, what's happening, the same thing in New York. I mean, just to <laughs> refer to the, uh, that article I read in Bloomberg, uh, it quoted Thomas Russo, who, uh, was a general counsel at American international group. And, uh, he's working from home. Uh, from Manhattan's Upper East Side where he's got a Central Park view and his response was, Central Park looks the same as it always does at this time of year, an array of colors giving pleasure to the eye and peace to the mind. So it's possible to be in Manhattan uh, if you're on the right neighborhood and just kind of enjoy the spring, enjoy the autumn colors. You know, we we often make fun of Newsweek, but you know, in the 80s, there was a point at which Newsweek magazine was this kind of great zeitgeist publication that with every six or seven weeks do some crazy story, you know, like uh, people who don't want to have children, you know, yuppies who hate children or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they would always find five or six people who would go on the record. They would be quoted on the record and you couldn't believe that they, that they were so stupid as to allow themselves to be quoted saying the kinds of things that they were saying. Cause it would always be like, Sure, maybe you'll hate me, but I really prefer hair products to children. You know, that kind of thing. Right. And and it's still the case, as that Bloomberg story shows, that 
call somebody up on the phone who has no self-consciousness or no awareness <laughs> of exactly his right. own, and he will, and you can find anybody to say the most offensive, stupid, heartless things in the middle of, you know, a tragedy in which, you know, the entirety of the Jersey Shore, uh, you know, has been washed away, a hundred, you know, a hundred houses in this very, um, uh, interesting neighborhood in Queens called Breezy Point burned down because the, yeah. because no one could get to the neighborhood fast enough to turn the gas off uh, as the fire spread. And um, I just think it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's heartless and, you know, inappropriate. And, you know, it's nice to know that people can remain heartless and inappropriate. <laughs> well, all right. Speaking of heartless and inappropriate, How's this going to affect uh, next Tuesday, Jonah? Is this going to mean anything to people? Are they going to? I mean, is, I mean, my feeling is that Sandy just kind of like uh, suspended all coverage of everything, and so everything was sort of frozen in place. But yeah, I mean, well, first of all, it depends if the wall of rats makes it to the swing stage. <laughs> yeah, let's no, talk about that. Um, you're you're but, protected, uh, but you're protected by your your verified status, right? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, at first I was, and I I remain basically really skeptical that that Sandy has a profound and obvious political impact. And I, I, I still am. I think most of this is, you know, when, when you suspend the daily tracking polls, you give the political class no choice, but to talk about something else. And they've decided to talk about the political impact of, of Sandy. That said, I do think that it, it feels to me that this has actually been a big help for Obama in one way, not that he's presidential and all, or that, Chris Christie is saying nice things about him and that kind of stuff. But simply because for the last three weeks, Obama was descending into becoming such a jerk. Right. I mean, such a small, condescending, I got to keep the language kind of tasteful on here, unpleasant person to listen to yeah. or to follow. And the hurricane simply forced him to stop being his own worst enemy for a little while. And I have to think that was good for him, whether it has a huge impact on the polls or any of that, I kind of really doubt, but I, I think it makes him more likable. Um, I don't think it, the being presidential stuff is all that important, but he was so unlikable there for a while. This has to help a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Compared to a hurricane, he, he's, yeah, he, like he's doing something right. Well, I, mean, I, don't, I, mean, well, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to have any effect on it, but it, it does seem like it, it whatever it did, it stopped whatever movement was happening, or maybe we just stopped measuring it. John, I'm sorry, you were you saying something? I, I I I strongly suspect that you know that that uh, has you know no effect whatsoever, particularly as it's taking place, you know, affecting states where where the vote doesn't really matter very much. Um, the one thing that can be said is that Pennsylvania and actually the Philadelphia suburbs have taken something of a hit um, and because of the ancillary effect of the storm. There are you know neighborhoods without power um, all around the Philadelphia suburbs, and if people there are in a bad mood uh, come next Tuesday, that's something that you know that's a place where Obama really needs to perform. Right. Uh, if in fact there is a surge. Of support for Romney in Pennsylvania. If he underperforms in the Democratic suburbs of, of Philadelphia, he'll lose Pennsylvania. If he loses Pennsylvania, the election is over. I still think it's unlikely that that will happen, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, stranger things have happened. Um, and uh, right, because um, Pennsylvania, 
can't remember Pennsylvania is a Republican state with right. a, two huge Democratic cities in it. And Obama needs to wildly overperform in Philly and Pittsburgh and those, those inner suburbs. And if he does that, it compensates for these incredibly Republican counties everywhere else. If those guys don't show up, it's very easy to see how Romney could win. And I, I just have no idea whether the storm is that powerful mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania to, to actually effectuate that. But, you know, that's that's how it could affect it. As I say, it's more more of it is about, like, you know, the mood. Like, if you spend yeah. two or three days without power, it's cold, your kids aren't in school, you don't know what's going on, you can't get to work, there are trees down on your street. And the rats. Uh, and you and the rats. <laughs> and the rats, of course, and you don't, have a tw- you don't have a verified Twitter account. You know, you're not in a good mood. And, and generally speaking, Obama needs people to be in a, re- a reasonably good mood when they go to the polls to vote for him. That, you know, his natural natural voters otherwise they may be in such a lousy mood yeah that they um, won't turn out at all it's not much i don't think it's yeah. much um and uh pennsylvania is a state with very little early voting so you know the early voting wasn't wasn't and uh, didn't wasn't effective um so it's i think it's just very hard to say i think the classic line that is now being said is that the race this race is just too close to call there's no way to call it. It's too close to call. Polling that shows Obama up, um, almost all the polling that shows Obama up in you know, Ohio and places like that is wildly overrepresenting Democrats in the polling. But if you correct for it, you know, if you somehow look at it and say, well, it can't be that there are going to be more Democrats voting in 2008 than in 2012, figure that it's going to be much smaller, uh, you still don't know what's going to happen. So... You know, the race is the interesting dynamic is that today, really, uh, after two days of relative silence, uh, a bunch of polls came out. They're very, they're very favorable and friendly to Obama. This is Wednesday I'm talking about, right? The 31st of October, right. as we're talking. Um, and, you know, the important, most important narrative, as they say, for Obama, the most important, has nothing to do with issues, it has nothing to do with. But what Romney said about Jeep cars, there's nothing to do. It all has to do with the idea that he is going to win. He has to make it appear as though he is going to win, to win. That is the most important thing. He had a very good day today in the Romney is going to win <laughs> because of these polls, which essentially, I think, work as, as adjuncts of his campaign. I mean, if you have a poll, two polls that come out that say, that the, that the electorate in Ohio is going to be 8% more Democratic than Republican when in 2008, the ultimate wave election for him, it was 7% more Democratic than Republican. And in poll after poll after poll, Romney is winning independence by double digits and sometimes as much as 20%. So he has to overperform among Democrats. There's a poll by the firm PPP, a Democratic openly Democratic. Openly Democratic firm is polling for health care, you know, a single-payer health care uh, advocacy organization. So they find Obama up five in Ohio. How do they do this? Their sample is 45% Democratic and 38% Republican, or 37% Republican, meaning there are no independents. Why are there no independents in the sample? Because independents are breaking 10 to 15% uh, for for Romney. So if they can keep the independent number down, you know, and they keep the Democratic number up, magically and mysteriously, 
Obama wins by five. So the problem here, as we face it, is that, you know, there's this intervening event with this, uh, with, with, with the hurricane. There's going to be another intervening event on Friday with the release of the jobs report. Right. Which don't look um, good, by the way. They, 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 the initial. No, yeah. it looks. Oh, my well, God. You know, not I, only doesn't it look good, it looks yeah. horrible. Can we can we just we we'll get right back to that. I want to bring Joan into that. Before I do, I have to say that this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For our listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is 50 Things Liberals Love to Hate by Mike Gallagher. He reads it himself. It's very, very funny. He's a very, very good write, uh, writer and reader. For a free audiobook of your choice or that one, go to audiblepodcast.com slash GPL. That's audiblepodcast.com slash GPL. Hey, uh, Jonah, do you have an Audible suggestion? I or, do. Yeah. Um, Make it yours. It, <laughs> um, I am a, a, a big fan of Amity Schlaze's book, The Forgotten Man. Okay. Um, I think it's. Uh, I have some disagreements as they overlap, as some of the stuff that overlaps with my my first book, Liberal Fascism. But um, it's more of a different disagreement about emphasis than anything else. But it is a fantastically readable history of a period that is more salient today than people realize. Um, I think the sort of matchup of FDR to Wendell Wilkie is a great example of sort of a parallel of what we have today and that Mitt Romney is sort of a Wilkie type. He's a decent businessman who just wants to sort of do the smart, sane things and doesn't have some profound vision for transforming America. And FDR is a pretty good approximate, you know, uh, approximation of Obama in that he did have this, you know, this profound vision for how to change of America. And the arguments about who the forgotten man is and how they play out um, have a lot of resonance for today. And it's a great way to sort of do your homework on on the time period. Hey, John, do you have a choice? Um, going to the lighter, um, I, I would strongly urge people to look at um, P.G. Woodhouse's Very Good G's, which is a wow. collection of short stories. Um, if you don't know Woodhouse, who was a, um, a fascinating character, uh, some, somewhat dark in certain parts of his life, but he wrote these short stories about a, a nitwit, uh, aristocrat and his extraordinarily brilliant butler, uh, the nitwit aristocrat always getting himself into trouble and the extraordinarily intelligent butler always getting him out of trouble. Um, he wrote 30 or 40 books on the we <laughs> using these two characters, Bertie Wooster and Jean, over the space of 50 years. Uh, Very Good Jesus is the first. It's a collection of short stories. A couple of the stories are among the funniest things ever published in the English language. Um, they're read by a guy named Martin Jarvis, who is really a wonderful uh, reader and uh, really gives you a sense of, of, uh, of, the, of the class differences and the games that are being played by these people. And I strongly, I think this is actually something that really works in an audiobook format because they're short stories. You can listen to one for 20 minutes, it's over, then you can listen to another one, you don't have to worry about continuity and the like. So that's my recommendation. Um, can I ask another question here? Um, since we're talking about uh, what happens on Tuesday and then what happens after Tuesday, is uh, – uh, and this is sort of the, the subject of my time column this week too. Is, is there any – I mean 
Isn't there? A, I mean, maybe it's not. I mean, Jonah, you and I were on the uh, NR cruise together on two thousand two thousand eight after Obama's win, and on two thousand ten after the Republicans took this, the House back. In two thousand eight, after being just trounced in the election to, uh, in November, the uh, the the mood on the cruise was positively giddy. I mean, people were excited. This is great. This is really going to galvanize the right. We're going to have to rethink our our, our positions. We're going to have to, you know, we have to get more conservative, I guess. So, but people were actually genuinely upbeat. And in 2010, after taking back the house, people were kind of gloomy, you know, God, these bastards are going to betray us. We know they're going to do it. Is there any sense that the first thing that happens in uh, after assuming a Romney win on Tuesday, Wednesday morning, we all wake up and think, you know what? I know that Mitt Romney bastard is sitting there right now trying to figure out a way to raise our taxes. Or am I just gloomy? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think um, I think there's going to be some really interesting conversations on the right no matter who wins. Um, the tone of them will differ dramatically, you know, depending on who wins, obviously. But, you know, I, I think the right is needs to have a really serious conversation about what it means to be conservative, you know, in 2012, 2013 going forward. And that's going to happen no matter what. I personally am looking forward to some serious arguments with Mitt Romney. I think it would be good for the conservative movement. Uh-huh. It would be, good, be good for Mitt Romney and it would be good for the country. You know, um, I think one of the places – and a lot of people have heard me say this before. One of the places, you know, conservatives got themselves into a bit of a mess um, under Bush was that we were a little too eager to sort of – Green light whatever he did because we were in a war or because he was right. a good guy. And you know, there were lots of good reasons for it. But I think that the, the – and since Obama has been in office, conservatism has been so determined just simply to get rid of Obama that we, we haven't had all the conversations we need to have. And mm-hmm. I think having a sort of transactional relationship with Mitt Romney where he has to keep two, three, five promises that he made. One of them has to be probably the pro-life one. Um, and then everything else is a negotiation would be very good for everybody. It would also help Romney portray himself as a moderate because he would be able to triangulate right. off of the right. It would be good for the right because it would make us feel like we aren't selling our souls and it would help us understand what we actually believe. And it would be good for the country because that's the sort of tension that would allow Romney to pull some Democrats over to his side. And, and um, you know, and we need to have these arguments. So. I, there are going to be some real frustrations if when – and I think when Romney wins, I do think he's going to win. I'm feeling – you know, basically my attitude is – what I do is I have a three-day rolling average of my mood about the election. Yeah, I do that too. It's right. And, and so like today I'm sort of plus one in anxiety. But yesterday I was like plus two in optimism. And so you know, it, it, they sort of cancel each other out. Yeah. And so I, I – you know, if, if, Newt Gingr- if Newt Gingrich had won you know, the nomination in the presidency – this, he would be, you know, he would have chewed through his leash and run around <laughs> peeing on yeah. things within minutes. Romney's yeah. going to be on a really short leash where he's got to listen to the right, and so the right has to figure out what it wants to tell him. Well, one of the things I, I thought was unusual about Obama is that Obama didn't get that the minute he was elected, his two biggest enemies, political enemies anyway, or liabilities, were Nancy Reed and Harry Pelosi. That seemed to be obvious to me. That's what he needed to do is to sort of be a stiff arm them a little bit and uh, begin triangulating from day one. I mean, is, 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 wouldn't you? Shouldn't Romney do the same thing? I mean, shouldn't Romney, uh, uh, you know, uh, try to try to find you know six senators on uh, six Democratic senators to make his bestie besties? I mean, that's what I would do. No, I I, I have a slightly different uh, take on this. Um, 
I well, you are, but you're speaking. Before. You're speaking from somebody who is not a verified Twitter account, correct? Just that's, I want to clarify. That's correct. That's, okay, that, that's correct. So therefore, so, you know, when the revolution comes, uh, <laughs> I, I, I will actually be the judge, jury, and executioner of the the checkmark. I, I do have to say that while there are many people, I think who are ahead. I was going to say uh, that list Jonah, is a long list. Jonah, Jonah is very in, the, safe. in the trial category, uh, Keith Olbermann, <laughs> uh, Henry, Wink, Henry Winkler. You know, there, there are many people uh, who I think um, Selena Gomez. I mean, there are many people I think that you know might might really require a worse uh, treatment. Um, uh, my 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 sense of this is uh, that the the risk for the right is that. Um, the uh, media echo chamber will, as it often wants to, and will now have a real reason to, will, uh, in a Romney presidency, it will amplify uh, the craziest and most irresponsible attacks on Romney from the right, and will pay no attention to the more substantive criticisms that might arise from Romney's, you know, how he pursues things strategically. And that, you know, you will get a kind of circumstance in which... um, you know, uh, a kind of uh, far-right radio talk show host screaming about how Romney is for amnesty after three days because he hasn't, you know, deported 10 million people or hasn't put up a bill or something like that is liable to get more attention than somebody who says Romney is not moving quickly enough uh, to deal with the Medicare problem or something like that. Or, you know, Romney, uh, rather than rather than doing what, what is necessary to, you know, examine the federal budget to see where savings can be found, you know, somebody, and this always happens, you know, there's a kind of hysteria over somebody gets strip searched by the TSA and then we spend a week on the TSA and how the TSA needs to be uh, undone, and if Romney doesn't do it, he's just a big government, you know, Democrat, and like that, you know. So this is the risk. The risk is that the serious conversation will be drowned out by the unserious conversation. It's a real risk. It doesn't mean that there can't be. And Romney does have one interesting problem, which is that the constituency that he has built, and it is a much larger and more passionate constituency than any of us could ever anticipate it and was really hardened into place by that performance in the first debate, really is a get Obama out of their constituency. Right. I mean, that is what they are excited, enthusiastic, and will feel grateful to him for, and will support him for, and will feel good about him as president for. But it does not carry over to almost any issue except the repeal of Obamacare. And if he, yeah. So it is not a mandate election. He does not have a mandate for anything. He has not run as a mandate candidate with a mandate for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his five-point plan could lead him in 50 different directions in policy or legislative terms. Do, do you so still think he's going to really win? A, I think he's going to win. Oh. I mean, I really think he's going to win. I think in an odd way, he's going to win even more because the polls suggest that he isn't going to win. I mean, wait, I wait. don't think that there's a... Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you why. But yeah. Okay. Okay, there is a huge split. It is not that the polls say that Obama is going to win. The national polls say that Romney is going to win. State-level polls suggest that, that Obama will prevail in the Electoral College. If 
the Gallup and Rasmussen tracking polls are in any way, shape, or we haven't seen Gallup in two days because of the storm. If they are in any way indicative of the truth, uh, Obama is not going to win the Electoral College because if there is a two to three point margin nationally, Ohio will follow the margin. It, it, somebody just looked back, somebody on, on Twitter I follow just looked back, since 1912, the discrepancy, 1912, that's 100 years, that's 25 elections. Um, the, the difference, and obviously it's a little hard to be polling because that would be that would be right in polling and all that for the, for the literary reader before 1936, but nonetheless, the discrepancy in the polling of Ohio versus national has been 1.2%. Right now, you have a discrepancy in the polls of Ohio and the poll average of 4%. There has never been a discrepancy between state polling and national polling in Ohio that large. And it suggests you, not that the mean, national polls, what? There was, in, the, in the result, you, you, you don't mean that the actual meth- numbers have been diverged. You, you mean ultimately no, at, I'm talking at the result. About, no, no, I'm talking about there's a divergent. That's right. The result has been one yeah. to one. And Ohio is off. close to America. Ohio, yeah. Ohio is America. And in fact, in most of the last 30 years, Ohio has <laughs> been more Wait. Republican than America. Yeah. I think Ohio, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce is going to take the John Bedort's blurb. Yeah, from this is Ohio is America. Ohio is America. John Pedoritz. <laughs> no, but I mean that's that's the whole point. Ohio Two is the state up. that most precisely mirrors yeah. the national. <laughs> Mostly, what I know of, of Ohio, by the way, has to do with driving across it from Chicago to New York when I was in college. And, and by you know, the way, the horror of the Ohio Turnpike is that there yeah. are no curves in it. It's dead straight. You drive for four hours. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Just... You don't fall asleep. But you can. You just lean back so, and set it on. on you go to South Dakota sometimes. The weird thing about Ohio, though, is how big it is. You forget just how how big it is. It's a that's a that's a big state to drive across. I hear that all it's the time, but in a different context. <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying. So even if you look at that, even if you look at that, you say, "Wait a minute, there is something screwy here." The nat- It is not that the polls say that Obama's going to win. The poll half the poll, certain polls say that. Romney, the national polls say Romney is going to win, and the and the state level polls suggest that Obama will prevail in the electoral college. The two are not really disjunctive. Well, let me ask you something. Okay. Ha- I mean, uh, Jonah said that he just he does a, a a rolling average of his mood, right? Which is kind of what I've been doing, and my, my mood goes up and down. As you know, I work in Hollywood, so basically, I have I'm wild mood swings. Um, yeah. How disappointed, how crushed. I mean, part of what I keep doing is trying not to be interested, not to be enthusiastic or excited about a Romney win or even, frankly, a Romney presidency because I want to protect myself from, from uh, wanting too much. You know, I, that's my problem. So I want too much, John. John, I, I, I yeah. need, I'm very needy. You do. And yet <laughs> I noticed that you don't need a blue, you don't need a verified Twitter account because you are better than that. Well, you know, and look, for me, I know I turned, it down. I, I turned that honor down. I turned it down. I just felt it was inappropriate. Uh, but so others made different choices. That's all right. Yeah, so I know I'll be fine no matter what happens because I have my check. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, but I feel, I mean, okay, I feel, I mean, this is a, this is a segue to a different topic, but I feel that uh, that if you want something uh, and, and uh, if you if you if you are excited enough about something or you anticipate it eagerly enough, 
it it could end up just hurting you hurting you deeply. And so part of me feels like if I wake up on Wednesday and we have a, four more years of Obama, I'll be miserable, but I'll be the kind of miserable that I could handle. Whereas if I wake up at a, 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 on Wednesday and it's the beginning of the Romney administration and I realize that sick feeling in my stomach that he's just – he may not do the big stuff that needs to be done, um, then I'll be sort of sad and depressed and I'll feel betrayed, much like I felt when I watched um, – that first new Star Wars, I cannot bring myself to call it episode one. I'll just say it's the fourth one. And it was, it was so awful. The last three Star Wars movies, which were so, so awful. And I bring this up because we should talk a little bit about, uh, about, um, about popular culture. And that, that seems like a really big one. Um, Disney just bought Lucasfilms. Which is, I think, I mean, I thought it was Lucas Arts, but I think Lucas Arts is something said. But he bought Lucasfilm, so they bought basically Star Wars, and it was a very strange feeling. Now, now they also bought Howard the Duck. Hey, they bought you know, Howard the Duck and and Willow. So you they, and, and uh, some and of that, Indiana Jones. And that crazy and that crazy movie in the Radio Land Murders. I mean, that catalog. Yeah, that's has a catalog. Glories in it. It's but really, wait a minute. I, Howard yeah. the Duck made some real dough. Howard, I was once at breakfast with like when I was just starting out. I was a film student, and I was invited to breakfast. It was like five guys, two, three of them were sort of super old uh, studio moguls, and me. And I made a Howard the Duck joke, and one of them put down his spoon and looked at me and said, "Let me tell you something, kid. Howard the Duck made a whole lot of money. You understand? It made a whole lot of money." And I thought, "Oh, okay. Well, then I don't, you know, stuff I don't know. It was kind of it was, it was a movie called Howard the Duck. Could have been that good, but don't. I mean." I when I saw that, I, the, my first thought was, "Oh no!" And then I thought, "What do you mean, oh no?" I mean, Disney will actually do a much better job at these movies than George Lucas could do. Am I the only one, Joe? Yeah. That was that was my, my initial response, like everybody else on Twitter, um, the, the 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 proletariat and the elite, the verified the, and the unverified, right? The Morlocks and the Eloy, as I like to say, yeah. um, was to come up with you know all of these jokes about mashups of Disney and Star Wars. You know, I had stuff like. Um, uh, Lord Vader, we have reports that the Apple dunk- Dumpling Gang is on the ice planet Hoth, and um, you know these aren't the dwarves you're looking for, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and then when you think about it for a little bit, you realize that George Lucas was such an enemy to his own creation, and so pissed on it, and so ruined it um, because he can't write and do- and doesn't like to write um, that. You know, and then you think about how good Disney has been with Marvel Comics and how it's been a great steward for the Marvel brand, more or less. Um, I mean, they can't make a good Hulk movie, but that might have more to do with the Hulk than yeah. with Disney. Um, uh, and you think, well, you know, maybe this is not so bad. I mean, I don't know that they could ever erase the the fully sort of brush out the bad taste in our mouths that those three movie, those three prequels made. But um, it may not be that bad of news. What brings you to Naboo? I, 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 I find that sand is gritty, and I don't like the feel of it. <laughs> Hold me, Anakin. Hold me as you did by the lake on Naboo. <laughs> that, that, that is the single worst line in the history of motion pictures. That. Future Academy Award winner <laughs> Natalie Portman was forced to recite that line. Yeah, although, although like, and, this is actually a good conversation. Worst lines in Hollywood because there's remember that awful movie Two Days in the Valley. Um, oh yeah, 
It was like a it's supposed to be a Quentin Tarantino ripoff, you know, kind of Pulp Fiction kind of movie. And there's that famous Charlie Theron's first movie, very hot, very yeah, hot. Yeah, she uh, cat, wow. Catfight with Terry Hatcher. Yeah, and there was nudity, but she doesn't do a Terry lot of Terry Hatcher catfight. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's Terry Hatcher plus any any yeah. any known gonna, female. But go ahead. I'm going to need a minute now. Um, yeah. No, but uh, <laughs> um, but there's a John. You'll remember there was a there's a director who was who had a role in it. What's his name? Paul Mazursky. Paul Mazursky. Yeah. And he has a line in there where he, where someone says, I was in the war or something like that. And he says, totally straight, like it's a real line. I think a lot of heroes die in war. And it was the <laughs> most ridiculous line. And it's always stuck with me as the worst line in Hollywood. But right, hold me yeah, like no, you did by the lake in Naboo is pretty close. Yeah, that's pretty – there are two, <laughs> there that's are a good two one. worst lines, I think. Not from the Star Wars. They're the two worst lines. Uh, there's one from this terrible um, uh, movie with the William Hurt called The Doctor or The Doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. He plays yeah. a doctor yeah. and he's, got, he's, he's, he's cold and, and uh, unfeeling and then he gets throat cancer and he, he, he gets warm. And, uh, and there's one uh, scene where he – I think it's Christine Lottie where he's um, – Suddenly uh, decided to barbecue and he's in the back and it's cold. It's, it's winter, but he's still barbecuing. His wife comes home and she looks at him and she comes outside and she says, uh, uh, it's cold. And he turns to her and says, yes, you are, which I <laughs> love that. It's like really bad. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Zinger. Um, and the second one was from a great movie. I, I am obsessed with these movies, uh, these disaster movies, Earthquake. Uh, you know, the Towering Inferno, Earthquake, these are fantastic pictures. Like every star at Hollywood is in there playing some horrible version of themselves. And uh, there's a moment where Charlton Heston uh, in Earthquake is uh, uh, – and Ava Gardner plays his, his estranged wife and she's this rich woman. And, uh, and his father-in-law offers him some big, big um, uh, jobs, like some huge job. And he thinks – he's an architect. He thinks about it goes, yeah, I don't know. And then, and then his, wife, his ex-wife – his estranged wife is there and she says, so you'll stop seeing your girlfriend? Like – and, and <laughs> he realizes it's been a bribe and he walks out in this, in this lobby and he, and, he, and he starts hitting – going to the elevator and she runs after him. She says, Stuart, Stuart, where are you going? And he turns to Ava Gardner and Charlton says, I don't know, anywhere. A bar. Jeff always loved like, <laughs> worst, like I, this will shock you. I'm going to a bar, which I always loved. Um, I got, I got, was, I got one okay, from a from a disaster movie. Yeah, uh, the Towering Inferno. So in the Towering Inferno, there's some scene where these people who are trapped at the top of the building and it's on fire, and they're, they're in a big. I think it's a New Year's Eve party or something, and it's like a husband and wife, and they're in their sixties or something. And they're rich. I think it was Fred Astaire. And his yeah. wife. No, was it wasn't this. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was like okay. I don't even know who it was, but they're they're staying there and they realize they're going to die. And then you know, and and he says to her, "I hope you know our daughter is okay." And she says, "She's such a child. She doesn't even know the combinations of the safety deposit box." <laughs> <laughs> this is always my last. You know, thought. it's like they they edited. So they sit in an editing bay, editing right. <laughs> these movies for three months. Did it occur right. to no one, maybe just to cut? You know, they, aren't they always looking for like a few seconds to shave off here and there <laughs> to get their running time down so people can spend more time at the concession stand? Like nobody thought to cut that line. Well, you know, those <laughs> movies, get, yeah. those movies, those Irwin Allen movies were done. They, they would shoot them with, with six cameras going, he, you know, because he really wanted to get these things done fast. 
And, you know, he had all these stars. He, you know, he had to book all these stars for like, uh, you know, a week here, a week there. So they shot everything. So the coverage was like they didn't you know, normally, a, you know, a movie, you know, you, you, you got one camera going and then you can change the angles. You do this, you do that. He tried to shoot him with six going so that it was never you really never needed to do any more takes. Because you had all the coverage you needed, which was actually kind of smart. But the movies themselves are hilariously, wonderfully bad. But I don't think anything beats um, what brings you to Naboo, Dooku, or Dooku, Naboo. Yeah, that, that's, that, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's what brings you to Naboo, Dooku. Dooku. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so, so it's going I mean, to get better, right? You, don't you think? If they're they're going to make three more. Well, that, well, I, think gonna make, I think it's going to be like James Bond. And they're going to make infinitely more. I don't think it's ever going to stop now. No, I mean, I mean, it'll, they'll, they'll, you know, I, I really look forward to a resolution of the really thrilling trade war drama that I think yeah. really, <laughs> really, you know, ran through the, 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 the people, the whole lot. I mean, that really is what's going on is that I believe, um, the empire, uh, are free traders and the, right. uh, the rebellion is actually, they're kind of tariff, uh, you know, protectionist, and um, I don't know. I may have to go with the empire. Uh, yeah, no, it, know, it's a lot like you know the Austro-Hungarian empire. Mm-hmm. The Austro-Hungarian empire kept free trade going between all those little countries in Europe, and it was yeah. all those nationalists that were the problem. You know, I'm a big defender of the Austro-Hungarian empire, but um, yeah, I uh, mean, actually, it, it's hard not to look at the even the empire in Star Wars and not think, well, you know, I mean, you got to bring some order to this place. The um. I mean, if we're, gonna, if we're just going to pick on the carcass of it, I don't remember which one of the th- – I think it was the third of the prequels where, you know, they had already made Galaxy Quest like four years earlier where they make fun of this cliche in, uh, you know, mo- movies for – you know, since I guess Laurel and Hardy or Buster Keaton of like the conveyor belt with the stamping machine that comes down. You have to dodge the, you know, the the different – the, the machines that are going to squish you sideways or squish you from on top <laughs> right, or right, right, jump right. over the hole like Donkey Kong kind of thing. And they've been around for for like a century in film and they become a joke and they make fun of them in Galaxy Quest where Sigourney Reaver is running around saying, why is this here? It makes no sense. <laughs> exactly this was a right. badly written episode, right? And then in the Star Wars movie, they do that. And, yeah. you know, and they have this and it's all done for the video games. And all of a sudden you find out you find out now that R2-D2 can fly. That would have been really useful when he was like in the swamps of Dagobah. I mean, it, I feel like Jim Ignatowski from Taxi ranting about how they had Romulans doing things Romulans would never do in Star Trek. But the whole thing makes me so mad. Anyway, I'll be You quiet. know, I, I'm, not gonna, <laughs> I'm not participating in this level um, you know, I mean, I those of us who do not have a verified check on Twitter, yes, that's right. Are much more, much more concerned with the tra- with the propriety of the uh, Volkensky tra- translations of Anaconda and Crime and Punishment than all this nonsense. Well, you guys uh, are all about pocketbook issues. You just you you, you the, the the unverified Twitter accounts that sit at the kitchen table and they hash these things over. They're the good and great American people who worry about pocketbook issues, right? We are, not... and then you know, and then in the evening we write poetry because that's <laughs> oh, how okay. broad we are. <laughs> yeah, and how yeah. and how thoughtful, as opposed to you, you know, losers who just are interested in you know blue fancy blue things right. attached to your name. 
Yeah, yeah. Why don't you go back and study some internals of a Gallup poll? <laughs> That's right. You're right. <laughs> Find the weightings. What the weightings are. Um, is is there, uh, any, is there any sense that in a month a month from now we'll be looking back at this, or two months from now looking back at this and wonder how we got it so wrong? Of course. Sure. Of course there is. Of course there is. That's why we have elections. I mean, the whole joke about this is that we've been we've spent a year talking about sort of strategy and how people are doing. We don't know how anybody's doing. We don't know anything about how anybody's doing. Yeah. But we're, we're using this extrapolated data from, you know, a few hundred people who are talked to, and then, and then they merge that data with other people's data. And we're, we're sitting here in our, you know, in our homes, imagining that we know what's going on in the minds of somebody in Sandusky, Ohio. It's preposterous. And, and that it's we can measure it. That it's, that it's measurable. That's what I find so crazy is that I sit, I've sit in focus groups all the time, and, and the idea that you can confidently say something is – you can measure something and, and predict its success. I mean uh, you know, remember this TV show was on years and years ago. The uh, Emeril Lagasse, he was, uh, he was uh, the, the cooking guy from the Cook Food Network who was such a huge, huge uh, cultural icon. So NBC had the brilliant plan to put him in a TV show. So they wrote a TV show uh, and they filmed the pilot and they tested the pilot. and It was the highest rated pilot. They have ever made, and it was premiered to sort of some uh, disastrous ratings, and then plummeted, and only lasted about six more episodes. Um, <laughs> the there's a show, there's a show on for ten seconds this season called Animal Practice, with actually a pretty good cast. And um, it, it, the the coup for Animal Practice was that they got the monkey from Hangover Two. They had that monkey. Well, so that's that a, that's a major coup. get. Yeah, it's a major get. <laughs> so they had the monkey, and they kept saying the same thing, which is like, eh, people love this monkey. This monkey is money in the bank. More monkey. We need more monkey. And they they put more monkey in, and just for some reason, American people just simply refused to 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 conform to what the what the focus group of American people indicated they were going to do, which is to love this show and love that monkey. They hated the show. They hated the monkey. Um, and it just I mean it it it. I mean, think of the millions and millions, I mean, really now hundreds of millions of dollars spent by these campaigns or, you know, more than that, billions of dollars spent by consumer products trying to test stuff and to predict stuff and to hedge risk. And it just seems, uh, it seems insane. I mean, I look, God by the way, that's God. a very good, this is a very good analogy. You know, the famous statement that has actually been used as a defense now by by studio executives rather than as a criticism of what they do is this thing that the screenwriter William Goldman said, which is nobody knows anything. Nobody knows what makes things a success. Nobody knows what makes things a failure. When you have as closely divided an electorate as we appear to have, when you have a country as divided as, as you know, 50, uh, 50, as we do, the notion that anybody even knows when an issue is hitting with people and that it's really great, you know, Bain Capital, that's really resonating with people. Right. Or, you know, the, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever uh, Romney's hit, you know, Benghazi is really resonating with people. We don't know. And that's not actually what this election is about. This election is a binary choice, a binary choice between two people. And at some point, 135 million people are going to go into, or already have, whatever. By by the end of November 6th, 135 million people will have made a choice between A and B, between Obama and Romney. And if mm -hmm. one more person chooses Romney than Obama, Romney will win. And, right. you know, that's, it's not, 
Benghazi did this, and this did that, and the first debate did the other thing. In the end, it's always a choice between, and this is why I feel confident, and I've always felt confident that things were going to go against the president, because he does not deserve to be reelected. I, I don't even mean this ideologically, though I could make a case ideologically forever. I mean, the simple fact of the matter is he's been president for four years. Four million or five million people fewer are working in the United States than were working when he was president. You know, the economy has sputtered. Um, you know, the, the country's position is you know, a pre- right. arguably either the same or worse than it was. You know, he decided to fight a war in Afghanistan, which he's now losing. He pulled out of Iraq, and now things are worse. Things are worse. Things aren't as good. He shouldn't be reelected. It's a very plain and simple choice. And you can say, Obama has done this, and there's more GOP enthusiasm, and Democrats are working on the base, and there's this and there's that. But in the end, the question of the election is, does this guy get reelected or not? And I say no. Uh-huh. You buy that, Jonah? Basically, yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I do. I mean, I think that it's um, uh, that, that, uh, that first debate was this aha moment for a lot of people that said, eh, I could live with this other guy in my living room for at least four years. Um, and I really don't want to hire, rehire yeah. this guy for another four years. Do you think, and, they, actually that, do you think they actually made that noise? Eh, they actually... I, I think so. It's certainly, <laughs> you know, in certain parts of the country, they made that noise. Um, I'm not, you know, um, and I think that, I think John basically has it right. I think that Obama um, ran purely on the sizzle. And he was so naive that he thought the sizzle could suffice instead of the steak. And, you know, all that stuff about Mario Cuomo, you know, we govern in poetry. We campaign in poetry and govern in prose. There's a certain truth to it is that you can't, you know, he had this idea that he could just give a bunch of lofty speeches. He had – he basically had the same view of the presidency that you would expect someone who knows nothing real about politics to have. That what the presidency is what you see on the nightly news. And if you've got big crowds cheering you and you give big speeches, you deserve to get reelected. It's sort of like a movie of the week version of the presidency. And, and he went in and he naively governed like that kind of guy and he failed at it because you have to fail at it if that's your theory of how government works. And, and I think people, even if they can't articulate it, they sense that that's the case. And I agree with John. I mean we could have a contest of who could go longer – explaining ideologically why he shouldn't be reelected. But I think most people just sort of feel like this is like, this is a salesman who knew how to make a sale, but he didn't know how to actually work the product he was selling. So this is what interests me, you see, because this is where we get to Rob's question about what happens after November 6th with Romney wins. Conservatives who think that this election is a mandate for a conservative governance strategy, particularly a social conservative government strategy, are going to be severely disappointed. Mm-hmm. Romney made his move by moving to, you know, relatively to the center. He is still a conservative candidate, but he moved to the center, a non-confrontational candidacy. If people think or expect or want him to do, I think, what Bush did, which is, which is you know, come in uh, at a moment of extreme uh, division and confusion and basically try to solidify himself on the right because the nation was so divided and really, really swing right because the cabinet choices, John Ashcroft right. and Don Rumsfeld and, you know, and, and, and that sort of thing. 
they're going to be disappointed. That is not who he is. And they're going to get angry at him and they're going to be wrong because he wasn't their candidate. He didn't get a, you know, they, they, people like that divided their vote among six lunatics. You know, they didn't cohere around somebody who could really take him down. This is not their race. This is going to be the anti-Obama race and the anti-Obamacare race. And what happens after that is going to determine the future of the Republican Party for the next 20 years. Meaning, however, if Romney governs successfully, what he does and how he governs is going to make a very large difference in defining the Republican Party going forward. And if he fails, Mm -hmm. it will make a very big difference in defining what the Republican Party will not be afterwards. Right now, if he loses, there's going to be a gigantic fight very much similar, if you think about it, all this talk, as I keep saying about, you know, all the great talent on the bench in 2016, you know, Rubio versus Kindle versus Christie versus Daniels versus so-and-so, that's all nonsense. That's not what the fight in the party is going to be. The fight in the party is going to be in the base, and it's going to be between, in my view, uh, Rand Paul and Mike Huckabee. Rand Paul being the sort of uh, more human, more serious, more electable face of his father, Mike Huckabee being the social conservatives who will now say, okay, now we're really through. We are through, through making these grand coalitions that leave us out in the dust. We are, we're through with it. You know, this country is going to dogs, and we're going to, and if they can cohere, if that fight can cohere around the two of them, it is going to be very hard for one or the other of them not to win in 2016, in my view, because then you're going to have the opposite of 2008, which is you're going to have the serious mainstream candidates, the three or four of them come in, dividing mm-hmm. the non-base vote, and you're going to have two people on the, in the base who are going to split 30 to 35% of the vote, uh, you know, 70% of the vote, and they're the one, one or the other of them is going to prevail. So, you know, that's the thing about the Romney victory. The Romney victory saves the Republican Party from a really, what I think might be a very frightening couple of years, uh, in which a lot of things are going to be experimented with. Weird ideas, dissociated ideas about, you know, how far the American electorate has gone and how they, you know, America now hates America and everyone's a moocher and, you know, everything is terrible. And, um, and, you know, so get into a kind of white-wing anti-Americanism, I think is very frightening. So cheer up for the worst is yet to come. <laughs> yes, I was just thinking like so we better to... win is what I'm yeah, saying. Better yeah. win, because <laughs> otherwise, what brings you to Naboo, Romney? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm sort of on pins and needles. I I I want this all to be over. I want to yes, know how it, when, how it ends. When next we speak, we'll know. Right? We'll know. We'll know. However, I do want to give you one final tip, which is there appears to have been a premature release. Yeah, ADP, which is the private, which is the private, uh, you know, payroll uh, firm, um, uh, which is often in disagreement with the jobs report because it's more optimistic than the jobs report. But it appears uh, that it has uh, it has released um, uh, by mistake, right? Early. No, it's not a mistake. But the release, the data is correct. But the but the uh, but the release was early by mistake. Mm-hmm. By mistake and right. they're 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 projecting um, eighty eight thousand jobs in in September, which would be down forty thousand from thirty thousand from what 
yeah. we were told was the September number or the the number last month. Um, and uh, you know, if they're anywhere close, <clears throat> that means an uptick in the unemployment rate. <clears throat> Hello. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry, I lost you. So it means an uptick in the unemployment rate, and that imagine that on the eve of the election. Well, that combined oh, no. with an absolute tsunami of rats would really put things into the Romney column, I think. Yeah, at least well, all, particularly, all, particularly if the rats got, particularly if the rats got in a jeep and went to yeah. China. Right, Jonah. I, I, I sense you had a rant coming. Oh no, no, it's it's, it's overtaken by events, and I, I think we're running long here. Well, and, uh, can you John, you can rant all you want. Well, it was just it was about when we were talking about focus groups. Yeah, I, I don't know if you guys saw this, but on the night of the third debate on CNN. You know, all the channels do their little focus groups, right? And they get together all the – and you guys have heard me rant about the undecided voters and how I, how, how little respect I have for them to begin with and how you know they're willing to go on national television and admit their own ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. I just find amazing. Get out of it. And anyway, so they had this focus group and so that Orion is, is interviewing them. And in this focus group, she says, OK, so how many of you – how many of you came in here leaning one way? And a bunch of people raised their hands. How many of you changed your positions based upon this debate? And a bunch of hands went up. And then you say, you, you think they're go, they're building up the the tension and the excitement to see who won the debate, which which who was moved to one guy or the other guy, and all that. And then she says, in effect, because your because voting is a private thing, we're going to respect your right to privacy and not ask any of you who you're going to vote for. And what the hell is the point <laughs> of having a I mean, like seriously you're watching this for like five minutes you're thinking okay we're gonna see you know and she says how many of you know who you're gonna vote for now and they all raise their hands and she doesn't ask them the question these people signed releases that's why they're on tv you think and the, but the upshot of the cnn position was that we have these people here because the american people are dying to know their their position on public policy it was the dumbest friggin' thing I'd ever seen. And so I start ranting about it on Twitter. And people say, no, they do that after everyone. CNN will not ask their own focus group who they're, they're going to vote for. They think it's a private matter. And, and so it ends up being a focus group about what these people think about the candidate's body language and right, what they think about right. their positions on education as if anybody in America, including them, give a rat's ass. Because by definition, these people don't know anything about that crap. That's why they're in the focus group. I'm sorry. It just no, I thought it was bizarre. It was the most unjournalistic, weird thing I'd seen in a but long time. But don't you think it I – mean, I mean, is there anything on TV weirder? And I mean sort of uh, the sum total, including Honey Boo Boo, weirder than a Frank Luntz focus group? Well, you know, on the last no. one, that group, I swear, <laughs> I swear I sat next to each and every one of those people on a plane at yeah. some point in my life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not anymore. <laughs> no, That's no, right. Not I mean, anymore I now that you have your check. <laughs> That's right. Your verified, uh, your verified uh, Twitter uh, account. Seriously, can't you, can't, Rob? Can't you just sort of picture John walking across, walking along the Upper West Side of Manhattan on Broadway in his bathrobe, oh, just yeah. ranting about my blue check mark? This has ruined him. Yeah, he's ruined him. <laughs> because the problem is that first, first John's got to explain to anybody what it means, and then he's got to explain why he's mad about it, <laughs> and, and but then follow up with why it doesn't actually yeah. matter. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's right. Like he'll be he'll still be muttering about this in his robe in the day room years from now. Like, uh, uh, Mr. Pedorz, your daughter is coming to see you today. And he's got a check. He's got a blue check by his name. We understand he, she's coming to say hello. Daddy, daddy. Yeah, he had a check by his name. <laughs> but John, I, I can actually Oh my it, it's, god. It's <laughs> I can I can talk you through it if you like. You know. I I'll, I um exclusive club couch for you you know <laughs> you know who has a verified twitter account <laughs> joe Adolf scarborough Hitler. that's all i'm saying oh, okay joe scarborough oh. so you went there twitter you went there it's account. getting ugly uh all right fellas gentlemen okay we have been uh we have been we've been at this for uh more than more than is fair value for our sponsors and our listeners um I look forward to the – I dream of uh, – uh, as, as Don Rickles says at the end of his show, I dream of the day the bigots disappear, L'chaim. I will say to you, I dream of the day that two things happen. We have a, uh, a Republican victory in the White House and uh, a little blue check by John Pedorz's name. I, I reject it. I reject it categorically. Yeah. OK. Except, well, we'll see. We'll see. Except if, except if I get it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know who has my blue check? Sashin Littlefeather. There's a piece of pop culture trivia yeah, for you. Exactly. Little Sashin Littlefeather was the fake Indian, the predecessor to yeah. Elizabeth Warren, who accepted, who, who refused Marlon Brando's Oscar for The Godfather in the name of the suffering. Oh. Uh, Native Americans, uh, and it turned out that her name was Nicole Garcia, and she wasn't actually even a Native American. <laughs> wow. you know, so it was a great moment. It's a good for moment America. for for all Garcias. That's actually a good piece to do: is a history of fake and fake Indians, because there's been a lot of them. Yeah, the guy, yeah. the Indian with the, the tear, wasn't he a fake Indian? It's Italian. No, he and, was. And, a, and Ward oh, Churchill. Right. He was, yeah. Ward Churchill, and then the guy who wrote that book, The Education of Little Tree, and oh right, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, there you so go. We'll take Indians. All right. That's our next. Uh, that's, that's, that'll be our next podcast. We should be prepared for that. Okay. Uh, fellas, it's great to talk to you as always. Uh, keep up alive. Let's hope it uh, happens for all of us uh, on Tuesday. And I look forward to talking to you about the events. Uh, John okay. Pedort, stay dry and uh, safe up there in, in uh, Upper West Side. And, and Jonah Goldberg, you don't need any help because you're protected by an invisible force shield given to you by the people at Twitter. That's right. And and. If you could go out with the theme music, you know, Michael Jackson, Ben, whatever that song is, you know, what the guy who talks to rats, just <laughs> uh, with a blue check mark, the rats will listen to me. Yeah, you know? just let Abe know that the rats are coming and they're coming for him. That's right. <laughs> All right, my friends, I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Ricochet. 
join the conversation.